Hello everyone, my name is Reese Garlinski and this is Young History, episode 141 on Australia, and the capitalist country is Canberra. The term Australis was first used in the 1500s and early maps often depicted this hypothetical continent known as Terra Australis, meaning unknown southern land, even though the actual land had not been sighted yet by Europeans. The name Australia gained popularity due to the work of British navigator Matthew Flinders. In the early 1800s, Flinders advocated for the name Australia for the entire continent, which was meant to drop the term New Holland. In his work, A Voyage to Terra Australis, published in 1814, he used the name Australia for the continent, and it gradually gained acceptance. Today, that is the name of the nation, which literally means the southern land. Okay, so now we're going to get into some facts and some other cultural stuff just for fun. So Australia is the home to the oldest known civilization on earth that we have proven can place them here at this time. Makings of a civilization because of course we just did Syria which has dates that go back super super far to early humans but that's more just people being present. We're talking about civilizations where there's culture and things that are specific to a region and that is here in Australia with with the indigenous aboriginal peoples that arrived around 65,000 thousand years ago and some other facts are that the dingo fence in australia is the world's longest fence it stretches over 5600 kilometers which is over 4,000 miles and it was originally built to keep dingoes away from the fertile land because they were a menace as expansion and colonialism and settlements all came to australia australia has an estimated population of over 50 million kangaroos which is more than double the population of the country in humans giant gippsland earthworms Native to Australia can be up to nine feet long, making them one of the longest invertebrates in the world. Uluru, also known as Ayers Rock, is often cited as the world's largest monolith. The massive sandstone formation is deeply sacred to the indigenous people of the Anangu tribe. Some other facts are that two-thirds of Australia's population live in five cities, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, and Adelaide making Australia the third most sparsely populated nation behind Namibia at number two and Mongolia at number one. Another animal fact is that 104 million sheep live on the continent, which outnumbers people four to one. And this is why Australia is one of the world leaders in wool population because for so long sheep have been such an integral part of this nation. And finally, Australia is an agricultural juggernaut. It is the fifth largest producer of beef globally and has nearly half of the world's certified organic farmland. I don't need to say a lot about Australia. I wanted to give you those facts because I thought they were very, very interesting or hilarious. And with that, I just don't need to say a lot about Australia. Every single person clicked on this episode for a reason. You all know where Australia is. You all know what it looks like. But the thing you don't know is the history, and that's why I'm here. This was a joy to study. Minus some of the very, very nasty, disgusting parts of Australian history, which I will get into and will absolutely not leave out details. Australia is a very unique country, considering it's the only country in the world that is an entire continent and is controlled by the same government, the same people. It is very unique. The history of it is special. The discovery of it by Europeans and the way it was inhabited first by the Aboriginal peoples who were the first to discover it. It is just so unique. So I'm going to stop chirping. I'm going to stop chapping it up. And I'm going to get right into this. So I'm so glad you guys are here. I'm so excited to be doing this episode. And so with that, I wanted to say one more time, my name is Reese Garlinski. This is Young History. And this is Australia. Let's do this thing.
Our origins begin 65,000 years ago when the Aboriginal peoples moved from, from Africa up through the lands that were there, parts of Asia, shoot down through India, come out around the archipelago of Indonesia, and then use the land bridge that once connected Guinea, Papua, all that, to Australia, and this is how people got to the landmass we know today as Australia. The first people were the Burinians, and they were pygmy people that eventually had to flee south because of the arrival of the Meridian people that came from different parts of Papua that followed that same land chain that the Burinians did. Now, the Burinians came in that time. This is the general term we use for the people that came in that 65,000 years ago period. And then the Meridians are ones that came 20,000 years ago. And because of the Meridian push, the Burinian people almost became fully extinct. These people groups split the land into at least 250 different sections, each inhabited by a different tribe that created their own language, practices, and culture. And yes, I literally mean there were over 250 indigenous languages created and spoken here. They have similar genetics to the indigenous Papuans in Papua, New Guinea, and they spoke languages from Parma Nuangon language family, which is the same as Papua. They moved south to spread across the landmass after they were pushed by the Marinians, and it is likely that the Aboriginal peoples introduced the invasive dinko from Papua because it did not live here originally. And I'm just going to say now without giving it too much more detail, dingoes are so heavily associated with Australia, not only because of the name and its haha funny Australian accent, whatever, it's because of the fact that literally from this time where the Aboriginal peoples are introducing them all the way until this this massive fence to keep dingoes away from farmland are built. They terrorize people of all sorts, be it the Aboriginal people, be it the Europeans, be it anyone who comes to Australia, convicts, whatever. They are terrorized by dingo for the fact that they will eat anything, they'll attack anything, and they will mess your crops up and make it very hard for you to live. Following that, there is also a new belief that there was a second group of arrivals around 3000 BC because the peoples that live in the north speak languages from a different family than the south of Australia. The theory is that people in the north came from India much later in history. They are called Carpentarians. The Aboriginal peoples in the north also share a lot of DNA with East Asians and Austronesians in Indonesia, which further pushes the idea that this theory is true. Now, I'm going to tell you some things about greater indigenous aboriginal people's culture and the thing with that is i am literally talking about 250 different people groups so the things i'm going to say heavily apply to the beliefs of the people that we have learned through people that interacted with them the few records we have all sorts of things like that but it's not going to apply to every single individual tribe individually and there's going to be tweaks and things you could make to the things i say but overall the things i'm about to say apply to the greater indigenous community of the southern land of australia up until the arrival of Europeans. So just take it with a grain of salt, but here we go. The culture was based heavily on hunter and warrior status, as well as the arts. The Aboriginal people had different art styles to mark their tribe's influence. These are one of the most unique styles of art in the world. Aboriginal art can be picked out like that. The design of it is uniquely dotted. It has a lot of circles. The colors it uses are not seen in many other places. It's entirely unique in the way the face markings work for the different tribes. If you study it and then compare it to anyone else in the world, you'll very quickly see that it's unique and that the difference is very staunch. Wars between tribes were very common, as it was with the rest of the world. Conflicts happened over land, food, and the right to mate. A general belief of the Aboriginal peoples was in the dream time. This is a term used to describe the time period of world creation. It is described in stories of heroes who achieved massive changes and created sacred areas in Australia that are a huge part of Aboriginal culture. The diet of the Aboriginal peoples is known as bush tuck. It included a wide variety of plants 
animals, and insects. Traditionally, practices included fishing, hunting, and foraging for berries. Aboriginal rock art, some of which is tens of thousands of years old, is found across Australia. These paintings and engravings depict some stories from the Dreamtime, as well as animals, landscapes, and human figures. The Dreamtime suggests that there are monsters lurking in the night and things of that sort. So there is many depictions in these cave paintings and all sorts of things like that that appear to be like giant monsters and things coming from the night, different things like that that clearly were a big part of their culture and folklore, which were passed down to us through their art. Some other cultural things that music and dance were integral to the ceremonies and storytelling of the Aboriginal peoples. A major part of the ceremonies were the use of the didgeridoo, which was a wind instrument that sounded like this. The didgeridoo is a long wooden wind instrument that uses flicking on the base slash mouthpiece area of the instrument and the long wooden tube structure to make those crazy sounds you just heard. It was a masterful skill that was mastered by the greatest musicians of the time and it is still an instrument used today to articulate the culture of the Aboriginal peoples and is sometimes used in symphony orchestras which can be seen at the Sydney Opera House. The Aboriginal people also had great warriors that were revered for their individual tribe. They used boomerangs in warfare, and specific styles of war paint were used by each tribe to mark their warriors based on rank. Aboriginal art, for a long time, it was believed that the Aboriginal people did not use agriculture, and that was part of the justification for a lot of the horrible things that happened to them because they were seen as barbaric and not civilized enough to use newer tactics. However, Aboriginal agriculture not only existed, but it was very unique. There was not a lot of standardized farming because of the fact that the soil was very weak. The Aboriginal peoples transferred seeds from parts of the landmass to another for growth. They used plants they grew in their villages to feed sheep and would leave parts of the root vegetables behind so that they would grow again. There is evidence from New South Wales that suggests Aboriginal people were using giant huts as ovens to bake food 30,000 years ago, which makes them the Earth's earliest bakers. Bugong moths were also insects that were widely consumed once they arrived on the Australian mainland, or at least were noticed by the people. The moths were consumed and their remains were made into a paste that could be incorporated into a larger cake that was then smoked in the previously mentioned huts. They are extremely protein dense and were a part of a very nutritious diet that these Aboriginal peoples had, even though it sounds disgusting. The Aboriginal peoples also used fire to break up natural areas so they could protect their plants from wildlife. The fire was able to clear treed areas for other plants and to scare off animals so that the sheep could graze the land and not have their food source taken away. There is also evidence that the Aboriginal peoples used fish traps made with rocks to block in the fish at least 5,000 years ago, and maybe as far back as 20,000 years ago. It was a very simple design where rocks were stacked up in S shapes and other curvature so that a fish would go in one entrance and then someone would run up and place a, another rock at the top of it so it would close off the entrance and the fish would be trapped inside and would thus be much easier to catch. This also came at a time when sea levels were much lower in the world and this isn't even like the huge current struggle 
that we're having with sea level change. This is just one of those times in history where sea levels were lower because of the way the earth was heated up at the time, as opposed to the past. Many Aboriginal cultures practiced animism. They believed that all parts of the natural world possessed a spiritual essence. This is why there was such a great respect for nature and all living things in Australia. The Aboriginal peoples were deeply rooted in tradition, and this slowed their greater progress toward other advancements culturally and technologically. This is also why many boys had to suffer initiation processes in certain tribes, and this can be seen in the images we have from the time of photography and historical reports from the Europeans that arrived here of boys having backlashes, burns, and other mutilations on them that were part of joining a tribe and being admitted as a full-grown man. And with all this culture, the Aboriginal peoples had it figured out. They had their own system going. They were far away from the rest of the world. They did not need anything from anyone. This meant that the faraway landmass known as Terra Australis was uncontacted by the world for many centuries because nobody knew it existed. They just believed it did. That theory goes back to the Greeks and the Romans, the philosophers like Plato and all that, believe that somewhere in the world there had to be southern continents to even out the facts that there was so much land in the northern hemisphere. And the belief in that is just crazy, but I don't know where you get it from, but they were clearly right. So we're going to jump now to go from the time of the Aboriginal peoples being the only people here to the arrival of the Europeans. Dutch explorers for the United East India Company, or Dutch VOC, had established settlements in Indonesia, so they had a desire to explore Oceania further. The Dutch explorers had that same belief, or at least wanted to figure out the theory of Terra Australis Incognito, which was the unknown southern land existing somewhere in Oceania. So Dutch explorers navigated Oceania and hoped to find this southern continent. Dutch explorers arrived in western and northern Australia in 1605 in an accidental arrival. A few sailors were killed by aboriginal peoples that didn't trust the odd-looking outsiders because to this point there had never been a single white-skinned person to ever step on this land. So of course the aboriginal peoples did what the rest of the world should have done, and when they saw these guys arrive on big boats, they fought back. In 1616, another voyage by the Dutch mapped out the western area, albeit not super accurately, and named the area New Holland. But they didn't establish any permanent settlements here, because from the aggression from the aboriginal peoples on the other side, they didn't think it would be worth it to explore this land that they didn't know had any riches. Abel Tasman was a Dutch explorer who lived from 1603 to 1659. He became the first European to touch the island that became Tasmania. It was named Van Diemen's Island at the time. However, Abel Tasman completely missed the eastern side of Australia, which remained unmapped and undiscovered by Europeans for much more time. Tasman specifically noted that there was a Tasman specifically noted that there was little to nothing of value on this land. He regarded the people as uncivilized and believed that Europeans would be better off not interacting with this new landmass. The Dutch pulled pretty much all their resources from any development in New Holland. And from here, Europeans listened to Abel Tasman for over a hundred years. Nobody would arrive from Europe or would attempt to get to Australia in this time period. However, there were still unintentional interactions with the landmass, such as the one in 1656. A Dutch ship called the Guild Dragon crash-landed on the way to Indonesia. It crashed on the west coast of Australia. Seven of the sailors sailed back to Indonesia to get a rescue party back to Western Australia after they escaped. Even though the seven sailors who left made it back to Western Australia, the rescue mission never located the crew of the Gilt Dragon. However, this would be the last noted interaction we have here until a greater arrival comes. In the late 1700s, the British become the first European power to 
reinvest their interest in this new land. The British started to get interest in the land because they believed that there were riches within its borders. There is also the idea in the academic space that part of the reason Britain was interested in the land was because of the reports from Abel Tasman that there were unconquered people here that may be of use to the British, if you catch my drift on be of use. James Cook, an explorer for Britain, had three voyages to the eastern half of Australia. Cook's first voyage above the EMS Endeavour primarily aimed to observe the transit of Venus across the sun, which was this used boat track across the ocean to pass through Tahiti and then go to other parts of the world. Another secret mission was to search for the hypothesized Terra Australis Incognita, because at this point, Abel Tasman hadn't officially declared it this land they just believed this was connected to Papua New Guinea which had to have been connected to other parts of a greater continent that they hadn't interacted with yet so they believed that this wasn't the unknown southern land that all the Greeks had referred to. Cook and his crew first landed on the Australian soil at a place they later named Botani Bay which is near modern-day Sydney. On April 27, 1770, the site was named for the diverse and unique plant species collected by the ship's botanist Joseph Banks and Daniel Solander. In August of 1770, at Possession Island, off the coast of what is now Queensland, Cook claimed the eastern portion of the Australian continent for the British crown, naming it New South Wales. It would not be until 1788 that the first fleet would arrive at Sydney Harbour to create a permanent settlement. The first fleet had a debated amount of convicts on it, but we know that it was close to at least half of the fleet's population. The British had sent convicts to New South Wales because the United States had claimed independence, and that was their former location to send convicts away to. The leader was Arthur Phillip, who became the governor of the first British settlement in Australia. Governor Arthur Phillip was noted for the way that he treated the Aboriginal peoples. He did not want war with them, nor did he want to abuse them, because he felt at the very least they were equally deserving of rights given to man. Nonetheless, the Aboriginal peoples were very resistant to the idea of these new people coming to their land. Even when there was violence, Arthur Phillip was still noted for his peaceful pursuit of good relations with the Aboriginal peoples. Now, this is not some claim by me to try and say that the Aboriginal peoples were this violent group that attacked anything they saw, and the white people were the victims, and they just retaliated, oh, what was me, I'm European. No, I'm not doing that, I'm just saying that Arthur Phillip was one of the few level-headed ones that actually got into a leadership position in early Australian history that involved Europeans. And the next major person we see is Matthew Flinders, who became the first captain to circumnavigate Australia. He confirmed that this was indeed the giant landmass, untouched by the rest of the world and contents that we knew. He was the one who gave it the name Australia. The settlements in New South Wales, such as Newcastle, Brisbane, and Melbourne, were part of the penal colonies that housed exiled prisoners. Adelaide was one of the first successful free colonies. The British formed dozens of settlements across Australia from 1788 to 1872. But this was not easy. The landscape of Australia made it very hard to grow crops because the soil was so weak. Famine was common, diseases spread like wildfire, and as you can imagine, the wildlife in Australia was just as brutal and wild then as it is today. So on top of all these problems, there was also the human factor. Australia was still used heavily as a place for British convicts to be exiled to, and therefore there was a lot of struggle between the new settlers of Australia and said convicts. William Buckley, a former soldier, was convicted of receiving stolen goods and transported to Australia as part of a group of convicts in 1803. He was part of the first party to establish a settlement at Port Phillip near modern-day Melbourne. Buckley wandered alone in the wilderness until he encountered a group of the Wartharong people, an aboriginal people group. Initially, they were frightened of him, 
probably because of his height, since he was six foot six. However, they came to believe that he was a reincarnation of the deceased tribal member, largely because he had picked up a spear made by someone that had recently lost there. The Wartharog people accepted Buckley into their community. He lived with them for the next 32 years, adopting their language, customs, and way of life so much so that he forgot much of his English language. In 1835, Buckley reemerged from his life with the Wardrong when he encountered a party led by John Batman, who was establishing a new settlement at Port Phillip. Buckley was officially pardoned for all of his decades-old crimes and worked various jobs, including ones as an interpreter and guide for the settlers, due mainly to his knowledge of Aboriginal languages and culture. Then, there was the Burke and Willis Expedition. It is one of Australia's most well-known and tragic exploration stories. The expedition took place in 1860 and 1861. It was the first attempt from a south to north crossing of the Australian continent. It was set to leave from Melbourne in the south of the Gulf of... It was set to leave from Melbourne and then travel to the Gulf of Carpentaria in the north. The expedition was also seen as a race to beat the South Australian team, which was planning a similar journey. The expedition was led by Robert O'Hara Burke and William John Willis. Burke was an Irish soldier and police officer who was in command of the expedition, while Willis was a surveyor and scientist. The team made its way through Victoria and New South Wales, then into the uncharted interior of Australia. By December of 1860, they established a base camp at Cooper Creek. Burke decided to make a dash to the Gulf of Carpentaria with a small party, including Willis, John King, and Charles Gray. On the return journey to Cooper Creek, once they arrived at the Gulf, the marshes and mangroves were so heavy they couldn't actually look out to the ocean, but they still believed they had made it. On their return journey back to Cooper's Creek and the Melbourne area, the group suffered immensely from exhaustion and starvation. Charles Gray died of illness, and both Burke and Willis also perished on the way back. John King was the sole survivor of the Northern Party, found alive by a search party once he was discovered being cared for by indigenous aboriginal peoples. Despite its tragic end, the Burke and Willis expedition became a symbol of bravery and perseverance in the face of adversity. It also highlighted the challenges of exploring Australia's harsh interior and the importance of understanding and respecting the environment of this great landmass. In previous elections that had occurred in Australia, there was a lot of issue with intimidation, just like in the United States. Australians were forced to cast their vote orally, which meant there was absolutely no privacy. However, this changed in 1856 when Australia created a standardized secret ballot on paper. People were no longer required to do anything except for cast votes of standardized candidates in a privatized booth. This was not the precedent at the time for nations like Australia, by which I mean British colonies and European ones. The adoption of the idea in Australia actually led to the same thing being adopted by the United Kingdom in the 70s, in the 1870s, and the United States as well. Another group that was very unique in the development of Australia's culture was the Fenian Irish prisoners. The Fenians, active both in Ireland and among Irish immigrants in the United States, sought to end British rule in Ireland. Their activities included a series of uprisings, the most notable one being the Fenian Uprising of 1867. After the uprising failed, many Fenians were arrested by the British soldiers. Some were executed, while others were sentenced to penal servitude in Australia. They were subject to hard labor and strict discipline, typical of the penal system at that time. The most famous incident involving Fenian prisoners is the Cataplan Rescue of 1876. A daring escape plan was orchestrated by the Fenian Brotherhood in America. John Devoy, a Fenian leader in the States, planned the escape with the help of other Irish Americans. The whaling ship Catalpa, under the command of Captain George Anthony, was sent to Western Australia. On April 17, 1876, six Fenian prisoners 
managed to escape from Fremantle Prison and were picked up by a rowboat at Rockingham Beach. Despite being pursued by a British steamer, the Catalpa, with the escapees on board, managed to reach international waters. The escape caused a diplomatic incident between the U.S. and Britain, but the U.S. refused to back down. They said that they would not surrender these prisoners because they had made it into international waters, they were free, they made it to the States, and they were no longer criminals because they were no longer in Britain. The men were eventually protected in New York and were welcomed as heroes by the Irish-American community. John McDole Stewart, George Blacksland, William Wentworth, and William Hovell were all great explorers that tried to map out different parts of Australia. They moved west, east, northwest, southwest, and across the border that divided Tasmania and Australia. And speaking of Tasmania, convicts were actually moved there by the thousands in the mid-1800s. Colonists and their convicts competed heavily with the Aboriginal peoples for food, which shrunk the Aboriginal food supply. Land in Tasmania was taken by the British to expand the penal colonies. And this led to one of the legs of the frontier wars, which is the greater term used for European wars against Aboriginal peoples for land. And specifically, the one in Tasmania was the Black War of Tasmania, fought from 1820 to 1832. The battle started, the war started on Risdon Cove, the first British settlement in 1826 in Tasmania. In 1826, doctrine stated that the white soldiers could attack aboriginal villages if white settlers in the area feared for their safety. Of course, this set a precedent that unlawful attacks would be made lawful if someone just said the justification of, I felt scared. In 1828, all legal protections for aboriginal peoples were repelled and martial law was declared. White bush patrols and soldiers marched across the island to find and kill any Aboriginal peoples they could. In 1830, about 2,000 colonists formed the Black Line, which was a militant group that wanted to rake the entire island in search of Aboriginal peoples to kill them. This failed, but literal hunting of Aboriginal people went on until 1832. This was when martial law was officially ended. The population of full-blooded Aboriginal people in Tasmania in 1800 was around 8,000. Almost all full-blooded Tasmanians were killed by 1832, leaving just under 50 of them left on the entire island. Men, women, and children were systematically killed in a thing that was approved by the government and actually rewarded by them. This is one of the worst parts of the expansion of Australia and the creation of it as a British colony and European settlement. And it truly is one of the worst genocides that has ever happened in the world because of the efficiency of it and i don't say that as anything except for degrading because of the fact that you go from eight thousand people to roughly 40 that's 99 percent of people being killed so it's just unreasonable it's just terrible and it's something that the government eventually tries to apologize for but an apology only goes so far when you've killed an entire people group so it's just disgusting. It's horrible, but it happened nonetheless, and it's a big part of Australia really getting a grip on Tasmania and establishing it as part of the nation. Other parts of the frontier wars were fought across the land for the sole purpose of expanding the area of British Australia. Indigenous peoples battled against the Australians, but they were outmatched by European technology like machine guns. Tens of thousands of Aboriginal peoples were killed, and attempts to heal from this dark past still go on today. Aboriginal numbers were reduced by over 50%, and that is not the only way they were killed. Diseases introduced by Europeans introduced things like smallpox, which killed huge amounts of the population. And all of this is that greater frontier war, black war, genocide, if you want to call it that, of indigenous Aboriginal peoples. And it's just 
horrible. It's not covered enough, mainly because of the fact that it's really easy to cover up when at the time there was such little coverage on the thing. And on top of it, there's so few people left alive to tell the story of it or to inherit the story from their ancestors that it's really easy to sweep under the rug. And that's a thing that Europe and a lot of parts of the world have been very good at is sweeping away the things that they don't want us to know. And who knows how many of these horrors go unchecked. There's reports on this that are nasty, that British soldiers used to bury children up to their neck in sand and then compare how far they could punt their heads off. It's it's just things that don't make any sense. And the level of it is just, it's so far below human that you can't, it's just something you'd imagine in sci-fi or fantasy or high fantasy genres, but it happened in the real world. So it's disgusting and just know that no matter what good things I say about Australia from this point forward, which are the culture and some interesting historical moments I'm going to get into, remember to take it with a grain of salt of what it took to get there for a people group that had lived there for tens of thousands of years before having to be pushed away by this people group that came. So take the rest of this with a grain of salt, but remember that this is the worst thing that I've seen in a very long time. The next major event to affect Greater Australia happened in the 1850s. Gold was discovered in Ophir in New South Wales. This created the gold rush to Australia. People from Europe, China, and even the United States came to cash in on possibly finding gold riches. There was development of many towns, cities, and most importantly, an Australian national identity. Because of the migration, free settlers outnumbered convicts. And the Australian identity grew, which meant there was also a desire for a united Australia. More on that soon. Around 1854, the colonial government imposed a license fee on miners which they had to pay regardless of whether they found gold or not. This fee was resented as it was very expensive and was seen as an unfair tax on the working miners. The miners were also frustrated by the lack of political representation and the brutal treatment by the police and authorities sanctioned by the British, especially as an Australian identity was forming. Tensions escalated after the acquittal of the owner of Bentley's Hotel, who was connected to the murder of a miner. This led to the hotel being burned down by an angry mob of miners. In response to the ongoing grievances, miners formed the Ballarat Reform League, demanding the abolition of the license fee, the approval of the right to vote, and fair representation in the government. In late 1854, miners constructed a wooden stockade at Eureka Lead as a symbol of their defiance. The stockade was a makeshift wooden barricade encircling an area of the goldfields. The colonial authorities saw this as a direct challenge and prepared to take military action. The leaders of the rebellion were arrested and many were put on trial, but none were convicted. The harsh response to the rebellion led to public outcry and significant sympathy for the miners' cause. The rebellion led to important changes. The licensing fee was abolished and a system of miners' rights was established. The events at Eureka also accelerated the process of political reform, leading to the extension of the right to vote for miners. Thousands of ex-convicts were released each year. Most worked as civil servants. Others turned to be bushy frontiersmen on the grind. Others turned to be bushy frontiersmen of the landmass. Dusty swagmen, gallant drivers, bush poetry, and bush rangers rose up in the wildlands. Gallant drivers were stagecoach drivers in the late 1700s and 1800s that played a vital role in transportation and communication across Australia's vast distances. These drivers, often facing harsh and dangerous conditions, could be seen as gallant for their courage and endurance, hence the name Gallant Drivers. This became a popular job among former convicts and colonists. Dusty swagmen hold a place in Australian folklore and are often associated with the bush and outback. They are celebrated in songs, poetry, and stories. Dusty swagmen were kind of like 
Australian nomads that traveled from place to place in search of work, but embodied independence and the resilience of these people who wandered the great landmass. Bush poetry in Australia refers to the style of poetry that emerged in the late 1800s and had a characteristic focused on the Australian landscape and the bush. The outback is what is known as the bush. It's this greater area of nothing but plains and bushes. This form of poetry often reflects the experiences, activities, and other characters that experienced rural life in Australia. The most famous bush writer was Banjo Peterson. He was a famous Australian bush poet, journalist, and author. Born on 17th of February, 1864 in New South Wales, he grew up in a rural Australian bush which greatly influenced his later writing. Patterson is revered as one of Australia's greatest poets, and his works played a significant role in defining Australian cultural identity. He wrote several iconic poems, including Waltzing Matilda, which is often regarded as Australia's unofficial national anthem, and describes the life of a dusty swagman nomading and traveling across the great landmass. Bush rangers in Australia were outlaws who engaged in various criminal activities, including robbery, bush banditry, and horse crimes and more particularly in the mid-1800s, they became iconic figures in Australian history and folklore, often regarded as rebellious anti-heroes who challenged the British colonial rule. Bushrangers exploited the vast, rugged terrain of the Australian bush to evade law enforcement. The remote and often impenetrable landscapes provided perfect hideouts for these people. Bushrangers often targeted stagecoaches, banks, and small towns. Some became notorious for their daring and elaborate robberies, while others did petty theft like, like horse thievery. The most famous of them was Ned Kelly. Ned Kelly was the son of an Irish-born former conflict that lived in the area, and he was from an impoverished family. He was also part of what is called a selector family. Selectors were introduced as counters to squatters. Squatters were people that used the Queen's land in Australia unofficially to let their animals graze. Squatters that were successful ended up forming settlements and making a lot of money. This greater organization of successful squatters became known as the Squatocracy. The Squatocracy would start to heavily clash with the government of Australia as the government tried to expand legal government settlements into the land that these squatters were using. The government introduced selectors to the land by directly giving squatter land to selectors as legal settlement for farm. The squatters would use their connections to local police and other authorities to make life hard for the new selectors in hopes to push them out and challenge the government. This is when the story reconnects back to Ned Kelly because his family as selectors would come into conflict with the squatters very often. Ned became a bushranger to find a community for himself to resist squatters and their allies in the police. Nonetheless, Ned ended up caught up with the police again because of his company as a bushranger. After a short time in prison, Ned Kelly ended his short time as a bushranger. After a short time in prison, Ned Kelly ended his brief stint as a bushranger. Ned had more run-ins with the law and ended up spending three years in a forced labor camp as a prisoner. This led him into his early adulthood. Once he was released, he spent two years working at lumber mills to keep his hand clean. However, Ned ended up joining his stepfather in more illegal activity after his time as a lumber worker. Ned and his stepfather ended up committing a lot of horse-stealing crime and expanded their work into what became known as the Greta Mob. It was a small crime-slash-family unit that became known as the Terror of the Squatter. Ned fled to the bush with the Greta crew once a bounty was placed on him. Ned's mother was jailed for harboring Ned and his allies. This boiled Ned's blood and divided him against the law. Ned formed a camp with his crew and refused to accept the officers that came after him. A fight broke out and he killed two police officers. One of them had previously arrested and beaten Ned. Specifically, he used a gripping device on Ned's nads. So now, Ned and his crew, which was now known as the Kelly Gang, went from horse thieves to cop murder. They escaped the Victorian bush. 
The gang was listed as shoot on sight and was wanted not only by the Australian police, but by the British Empire. However, many other disenfranchised groups in the Victoria area, like Gallant Drivers, Aboriginal Peoples, and Dusty Swagmen, supported the cause of the Kelly gang because they kind of saw him and his crew as a resistant force against the British colonial rule and the way they were abusing anyone who was in the nation. This led to some people harboring the Kelly gang. Many arrests were made, but this made more people unite behind the cause of Ned Kelly rather than go against him. Ned eventually wrote a letter to the local government proclaiming his thoughts on the tyranny of the English. He claimed himself as an Irish rebel that was fighting for all people in his class that struggled against the wealthy landowners and the British. For this, Ned was given the highest bounty to any Australian outlaw yet, 8,000 pounds. The Kelly gang robbed a town in Victoria to draw police attention. They murdered a local civilian and eventually police arrived. They came in huge troves in what became as Ned and the Kellys' last stand. Ned emerged from the town waist up in bulletproof armor that he had forged, and he wore a massive helmet of the same make. Ned watched his gang members die and then made a last stand. He used two revolvers and his suit of armor to battle against the police. For a time, he seemed invincible. Eventually, he was downed and arrested. He was put to trial and sentenced to death, all of which Ned accepted without protest. However, this was not true for the people of Melbourne who actually came out in trove to support the clemency of Kelly. They viewed him as a local hero and actually started a petition for his acquaintance of the crime. Despite the petition getting over 30,000 supporters, Ned was still executed just a few days later. And his final words, when asked if he wanted to say anything before his death, he simply said, such is life. The rebellious manner and actions of Ned Kelly, despite the nasty circumstances that came in, still represent a greater connection to Australian culture of resistance and fighting when necessary. And he is seen as a folk hero today, despite the fact that he did commit nasty crimes. He's a polarizing figure, and some do see him in the light I just said him, but others see him as a criminal. So he's very up down. I think he's kind of badass as fuck. I personally think he's very badass because having a bulletproof suit of armor at any point in history is kind of cool. And, you know, he was a disenfranchised group. He had a lot of struggle. I don't support cop killing, of course, not even if it's history. But, you know, like we said, there's that history cutoff where some pretty nasty events kind of become cool. And Ned Kelly is definitely one of them. And speaking of Greater Australia, in 1901, the desire for a truly national Australia came to fruition. The Federation of Australia was founded in 1901. This marked the independence of Australia from the British, but it remained as a member of the Commonwealth, so even to this day, the British monarch is still the head of state for Australia. I'm so used to saying the Queen, man. My entire life I've been saying the Queen, but it's not a Queen anymore, bro. That's crazy. The first Prime Minister was Sir Edmund Barton. The mostly European and American descendants that made up Australia had a fear that non-European migrants would ruin the culture. There was, a there was a specified distaste for Chinese immigrants and a huge priority for British immigrants. In 1901, the same year as the Federation was created, the White Australia policy was passed. This was an immigration policy that heavily limited the migration of anyone who was not British or white. Australia was touted as the white man's land. Aboriginal peoples were heavily otherized by the white majority. The white majority believed that as Australian culture expanded, the culture of the Aboriginal people would die out. Thus, they used this as a justification to assimilate Aboriginal people's children into the white Australian culture. And this is what's known as the stolen generation. Aboriginal children were taken from their mothers and raised into white Australian culture because they were believed it was a better path for them than the one the Aboriginal peoples were on. The assimilated Aboriginal children were called half-castes, which is now a highly offensive term in Australia. 
the young generation of Aboriginal peoples that were assimilated destroyed a lot of Aboriginal people's culture. This generation was supposed to inherit land, stories, and history of the Aboriginal peoples, but were instead forced to wear a white person cosplay for the entirety of their life. And then we roll into World War I. Okay, say something first. Get rid of that. The Stolen Generation is a thing I do need to acknowledge in two senses. One, for its nastiness, but also for another thing. I must note, for the sake of neutrality and honoring both sides of an argument, a man named Keith Winshuttle, who is a very prominent Australian historian, wrote a book called The Fabrication of Aboriginal History, The Stolen Generations, 1881 to 2008, and he, in this book, cites a bunch of evidence that would suggest that the stolen generations is heavily fabricated and that this was a much more successful and necessary doctrine than what most of history tells us. This is a very long book, 600 pages, that suggests a bunch of different things. If you are interested in getting this other perspective on this, I suggest you read it or at least look into a summary of it or talk to someone who has read it. I personally find that his suggestions and beliefs of why this is a fabricated history are heavily exaggerated. And I feel he misses the point of why people say that this is bad because he was still kind of of the belief that assimilation was the best method possible to keep these children in a good place. But to me, that is missing the point of Aboriginal culture being silenced and pushed down for the sake of white culture being put on top. But nonetheless, I also feel that the stolen generation is another very quiet part of Australian history that isn't talked about enough because, yes, it's very easy to talk about all sorts of things with Australia. We're going to get into some of the very cool ones soon, but there was still a very nasty path that led to it. So as I said before, keep that in mind and also remember that these things happen should be acknowledged and you and everyone around you should be very well aware of them before they say a word about this continent. And with that, we're going to roll into World War I. Australia fought alongside the British and drafted 416,000 men into the war. The Battle of Gallipoli was a brutal battle against the Ottoman Empire in Turkey that was fought by the Allied forces. For Australians, this battle was specifically deadly. It killed around 8,000 Australian soldiers and injured 18,000 more, which at the time, when considering all the men that went to go fight in the war, was about 3% of the able-bodied men in the country at the time. So, of course, the few thousand doesn't sound crazy, but this was still an extremely significant amount of people from Australia. So because of this, Australia, New Zealand Armed Corps, also known as ANZAC, was the title of the soldiers who fought, and every year on April 25th, both nations honor the soldiers who fought in this battle. Billy Hughes was Prime Minister during the war, and remained so after World War I's conclusion. The Great Depression hit Australia harder than almost anyone else after World War I. Many Australians faced extreme poverty, hardships, and distress during this period. Scenes of soup kitchens and unemployment lines became more common. The struggle in Australia was exasperated by its reliance on export economy to nations like Britain. The Depression made it so that exporting was not viable due to the fact that absolutely nobody was buying anything. Australia had also attached the value of its currency, the Australian pound, to the British pound, and the British pound was attached to the gold standard. All of these took a dump during the Great Depression, which meant, of course, the Australian economy struggled even more. There were numerous protests and demonstrations. The unemployed and trade unions often led these, demanding jobs and better support from the government. Rural areas, especially those in the wheat and sheep farming regions, were hit hard. 
many farmers were forced off their land. This was especially troublesome because there were so many farmers after World War I because the Australian government gave returning veterans land to open up a farm. On top of all this other struggle, there was also another issue for the farmers. The issue was emus. Emus are six-foot-tall flightless birds that occupy all of Australia and usually occupy the coast when they are not in breeding season. They feasted on the crops that were present in rural Australia because of how many more farms popped up after World War I. This began the Emu War. In 1932, farmers reached out to the Prime Minister of Defense, George Pierce, to handle the Emu situation. Because of George Pierce agreeing to this, the National Military of Australia declared war on Emus, which was their national bird. At Camp Yon, the first attack happened, and most Emus escaped. And then it happened again at the second attack, so the Emus started this out 2-0. Major GPW Meredith orders his men to mount their machine guns on trucks and drive after the Emus and shoot them. He believed that there was no way this flightless bird could outmaneuver his men that were well-trained as drivers and machine gun operators. Somehow, someway, this plan still didn't work because of the inaccuracy on the machine gun on the bumpy terrain of the Outback, and most emus escaped once again. Another shock was that most emus could take more than one bullet. They would get shot a few times and still manage to run at full speed. They wouldn't stop to freak out about it, they would just keep moving. And emus can run up to 40 miles per hour. So after this, the emus were now up 3-0 on the Australians. The members of parliament that opposed the war on emus tore Minister George Pierce apart. Some of them even claimed that there should be medals of honor given to the emus for defeating the military so handedly. Eventually, the military would return to the outback in Western Australia and find much more success in challenging this bird. Reports suggest that about 300 emus were killed per week for a month. By the end of this month, Minister Pierce declared that the operation was over and that it was a success. However, his opponents in Parliament cited that there were still at least 19,000 emus still ready to terrorize the farmers, and that the resources wasted in the conflict made it a loss for the Australian military. Therefore, Australia lost a war to its national bird, the emu. I tried to say that with a straight face, but it's just so hard. <laughs> and it's not even like it's ostriches, because ostriches are mean. Big, mean bastards that will fight back. Emus just dip, bro. They're just great value ostriches, and you still lost. It's just, Australia is so special. So, other than losing two emus in a war, Australia also has other parts of its sports culture, and cricket was a huge thing in the early 1900s. The early 1900s continued the tradition of cricket between Australia and England, with the Ashes series being the centerpiece of the rivalry. The Ashes, a term coined in 1882, became a symbol of cricketing supremacy between the two nations. This era is often referred to as the golden age of cricket, and this culture with cricket still remained very strong because in 2023, Australia defeated unbeaten India to win the Cricket World Cup. World War II broke out, and there was a huge fear that Japan would raid Australia. Japan bombed Australia nearly 100 times near the city of Darwin, and killed hundreds. This is when Prime Minister John Curtin reached out to the United States, made an alliance, and declared war against Japan. General MacArthur of the United States used Australia as a major base of operations for the battle in the Pacific and for the island hopping campaign against Japan. The Kokoda Track Campaign was a significant series of battles in the Pacific theater of World War II. It took place on the island of Papua New Guinea, not Australia, but it holds great importance in Australian military history. The campaign was fought between Japanese and Allied forces, predominantly Australian troops, from July to November in 1942. The campaign was part of the Japanese attempt to isolate Australia from the United States and establish a defensive perimeter in the Pacific. The Japanese aimed to capture the capital of Papua New Guinea, Port Moresby. 
The plan was for them to advance over the rugged Owen Stanley Range via the Kokoda Rail Track. The campaign was characterized by brutal close quarter combat and extremely challenging conditions. The steep, muddy terrain of Papua was exasperated by the torrential rain that occurred. This caused diseases like malaria to spread among troops on both sides. The campaign concluded with the Australian recapture of the village of Kokoda on November 2nd, 1942, and the subsequent retreat of Japanese forces. This campaign was only won because of the Australian and American grit to push through these unreasonable conditions and fight guerrilla warfare style against the Japanese forces. After the war ended, Ben Shifley, Prime Minister from 1945 to 1949, pursued strong ties with the United States in an alliance that would last to this day. Shifley's government focused on post-war reconstruction, aiming to transition Australia from a wartime economy to a peacetime one. This included managing the return of soldiers to civilian life. In 1946, his government established the ANU in Canberra, aiming to create an institution of higher learning devoted to research and postgraduate education. The Shifley government expanded social welfare programs, including the introduction of free and universal health care, which was later dismantled by successful governments, but it also undertook the creation of a social security system. Shifley's government faced a major challenge with the 1949 Australian coal strike. He controversially used military forces to break the strike in a decision that caused significant debate, criticism, and blowback from the miners. Around this time as well, southern and eastern European migration to Australia increased because Australia lessened the preference for British immigrants. Within a few years, 3 million Balkan and eastern Europeans moved into Australia. Another significant prime minister from the time was Robert Menzies. He was first elected prime minister in 1939, and his focus was on fixing the economy and manage Australia's military. His government presided over a period of significant economic growth and development. The Menzies era saw the expansion of Australian middle class and a substantial industrial growth. He also had a lot of conservative social policies, but also saw the expansion of social welfare systems and the establishment of important national institutions, such as the National University and the Reserve Bank of Australia. A landmark moment in Australia history occurred with a 1967 referendum, where over 90% of Australian voters supported amendments to the Constitution, allowing the federal government to make laws for Aboriginal people and include them in the census. Go Whitlam was Prime Minister from 1972 to 1975. It was under his leadership that white Australia policies were officially repealed and abolished. The 1970s saw the beginning of the Aboriginal Land Rights Movement, with the 1976 Aboriginal Land Rights Northern Territory Act being a significant step toward recognizing Indigenous land ownership. The establishment of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission gave Indigenous Australians a formal voice in government. And the Torres Strait is that giant pointy part of Australia in the northern area. That whole area is the Gulf I mentioned before. So Torres Strait are people that live on the islands just north of said Strait and are indigenous to that land and are a major part of the greater Aboriginal peoples that make up Australia. So they are ones that get a different distinction, but are still a part of the indigenous group of Australia. So they get included in all these rights acts and stuff because they should be treated like people too. I know, crazy concept. The next major leader we have was Paul Keating, who was Prime Minister from 1991 to 1996. Previously, he was the Treasurer of the Nation from 1983 to 1991. Keating was known for his advocacy of Indigenous rights and reconciliation. 
His Redfern Park speech in 1992, in which he acknowledged the impact of European settlement on Australia's indigenous people, is considered a landmark moment, sought to strengthen Australia's relationship with its Asian neighbors. Keating is remembered for his vision in restructuring the Australian economy, making it more competitive and integrated into the global market by contributing more goods to it. Known for his sharp wit and often divisive comments, Keating was both admired and criticized for his forthright style. In 1996, there was the Port Arthur Massacre. It was a shooting committed by a 28-year-old Tasmanian named Martin Bryant at the tourist site of Port Arthur. Bryant killed 35 people and wounded 23 others in a shooting spree that lasted about a day. The incident ended the next day with Bryant's capture following a standoff with police at the Seascape Guesthouse, where he held a hostage. The massacre shocked the nation and brought profound grief. It was, at the time, the deadliest mass shooting by a single person in modern history. In response to the massacre, then Prime Minister John Howard and the state governments implemented strict gun control measures under the National Firearms Agreement, the NFA. The NFA introduced rigorous background checks, a 28-day waiting period, and the necessity of a genuine reason for owning a firearm. A massive gun buyback program was initiated, resulting in over 60,000 firearms being surrendered and destroyed. The reforms are credited with significantly reducing gun violence in Australia and nearly erasing the presence of mass shootings. It's almost like when you limit the way people get guns and make it more standardized, there is a reason less mass shootings happened because crazy bastards don't get their hands on weapons that normal people should be allowed to use. Hmm. There's a country in the world that I love with all my heart that should use this same mantra. Moving on. Since the end of the shooting, Port Arthur has since established a memorial garden to memorialize the victims of the massacre. In recent decades, there has been more pro-Aboriginal people's policies. The establishment of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission has helped give Indigenous Australians a formal voice in the government. In 1992, there was the Mabo decision. The High Court of Australia overturned the concept of terra nullilis, land belonging to no one, recognizing the native title rights of the Merriam people to the Torres Strait Islands. Then, following the Mabo decision, there was the Native Title Act of 1993. This act introduced the idea of providing a legal framework for the recognition and protection of the native title. Then, there was the National Apology of 2008. Prime Minister Kevin Rudd delivered a formal apology to the Indigenous Australians for past wrongs, particularly concerning the stolen generations that erased a lot of Aboriginal culture that was left in Australia. In both the Iraq War and Afghanistan Wars, Australian forces, weapons, and money were sent to aid America's fight against Saddam Hussein and terrorism, even though those wars were both very nasty, drawn out, and did not go the way they were supposed to. Australia made great ties with the U.S. that have not since broken ever since World War II, and it seems that they have one of the better relationships in the world, even though Australians talk a lot of trash about Americans, but that's neither here nor there. Australia has become a very great, strong nation that leads the way in both civil rights, political rights, but this has not come without a lot of nasty business done by the government in recent years. I'm going to get into a few different things that lead into this, but first I want to talk about Papua New Guinea versus Australia. In recent years, the large archipelago nation that lies just above Australia, Papua New Guinea, discovered a lot of offshore oil near its borders. Papua New Guinea is a densely populated large nation that struggles heavily with poverty. The introduction of what would be billions of dollars in oil to this economy would literally make life better for everyone in it. The issue, however, is that Australia is trying to use slimy political maneuvers to claim the territory in the ocean as part of the Australian border. 
This would give all of the oil in it to Australia, which is a gigantic rich nation that absolutely does not need the oil, but the government will grasp its greedy hands onto anything they can get. Another group of people that suffer heavily from odd Australian government policy are asylum seekers. Asylum seekers are treated worse in Australia than almost anywhere else in the world. I got into this very deeply in my episode nearly two years ago on Nauru, which is one of my favorite nations, but Australia uses the small nation of Nauru as a place to imprison people who attempted to come into Australia as asylum seekers. This also occurs in some of the smaller islands that make up the greater archipelago of Papua New Guinea, and all of these policies heavily restrict the human rights of asylum seekers by having them caged away in foreign land and sometimes used as forced labor. This is also a really nasty exchange because Australia justifies it by one, keeping it very quiet, and two, paying Nauru money to house these prisoners in unlivable camps. So it's a disgrace disgusting practice that slips under the rug because Australia is not commonly seen as one of those nations that does nasty business. They're seen as very clean for good reasons, very rich, very all these things that are great about Australia. They have some nasty skeletons hidden in their closet. Keep that in mind. Another thing I want to get into is some economics. Economic policies in Australia have caused inflation rates to rise through the roof because of a continued doctrine of reducing taxes on the rich and increasing interest rates on people who take out loans. Listen, Australia, I respect you and there's some things you could adopt from America that are great, but doing your best America impression when it comes to taxing the rich and punishing the poor is not one of the things you should adopt from us. That's a thing that America does all too well, and you don't need to do that, so stop. But with this, there has also been many housing issues that have come with the fact that housing prices were skyrocketed because of the pandemic and never brought down. This is due to the fact that billionaire and millionaire property owners were able to push off the increased cost of property ownership onto their tenants and employees. The cost of living in Australia has skyrocketed over the last decade, making it hard for the average citizen to maintain payments of the things that keep them alive, while the people at the top of the government and some of the massive corporations continue to benefit from the struggles that hit the rest of the world during the global pandemic of COVID-19. And on top of all this, Australia is one of the laziest, weakest, childish, most stubborn governments in the world when it comes to the way it handles climate change. The Australian government refuses to join many organizations or coalitions against climate change. And on top of this, they asked the United Nations to remove the title Australia from most of their reports on climate change. However, the Australian government attempts very hard to appear like they care and want policies for climate change by submitting their bid for the climate change conference known as COP31. Despite all the subterfuge and lies, Australia constantly ranks as the lowest nation in the world when it comes to climate change efforts. This is extremely concerning because Australia should act as the leader of Pacific nations in the fight against climate change because almost every other nation in the Pacific Ocean, namely Nauru, Palau, Micronesia, are all very likely to lose the land they live on and maybe lives if climate change continues to go on. With all of that, that gets us to the present, where Australia is one of the most well-developed and rich nations in the world. Modern-day Australia is characterized by its vibrant multicultural society, robust economy, and prominent role in international affairs, especially in the Asia-Pacific region. Australia presents itself as a nation that is heavily accepting of immigrants since the nation shifted its policies back in the 50s and 60s, but that does not acknowledge the brutal treatment of boat-using asylum seekers who are tossed aside and thrown into other nations as prisoners, especially if they come from India. On top of this, 
it has become very clear that the Australian government is in an odd place where inflation rates continue to rise and the life for the average Australian is not as beautiful as it was many years ago. The cost of living is high and the government continues to bail out giant corporations instead of helping its people in their struggle against inflation and a brewing recession. Nonetheless, Australia is a nation full of history with stories that go back at least 65,000 years. Australians are prideful, gritty, resilient people that have made a home out of one of the most harsh, wild, and unique places in the world. Australia is so truly special. Everything about the way it was developed, the people that have lived here from 65,000 years ago, all the way to the ones that created the federation we know as Australia. All of these things are just so unique. They're so special. There's so much struggle that goes into it. Living in Australia, just saying that sentence sounds wild. I mean, even the stuff I said before with 50 million kangaroos and all the craziness that is this country. But that is the end of what we're doing today. So with us getting to the end of this history, I always like to leave it with a takeaway or a mindset. And that takeaway with Australia is going to be be gritty, proud, and wild. I think just by hearing that, you could kind of infer why I'm saying that about Australia. The Australians, from the ones that are the aboriginal peoples of the nation, all the way to the settlers that came in the 17 and 1800s, and then the ones we have today, like Alexander Volkanovsky and and Steve Irwin. And I know when you hear those guys' names, it comes right to your head. But Australians are just such resilient, gritty people. The fact that the Aboriginal peoples survived all the things that happened to them when it comes to not only the development of life in this landmass that is not connected to any other part of the world and is on the other side of the planet from every other civilization, not only did they push through that struggle, but they also pushed through the struggle of being abused, the genocide that happened on Tasmania, the fact that they were pushed off their lands, were restricted, were assimilated, had children stolen from their arms, all of these things they pushed through and still have a prominent culture in the nation today. The development of Australia came through struggle. It came in one of the most wild continents in the world. And there was brutal fights in both of the world wars that Australia participated in. Every single thing about Australia, all the way to its modern age, where they're some of the best rugby players in the world, all of their sports are very strong and head-on and they love to fight and they're strong people all these things make so much sense with the australian culture because they are gritty resilient prideful people i say you should take that in to yourself and embody that and push it out if australians of all sorts have been able to do this throughout their entire history then it is so clear you can do the same to succeed in whatever area of your life you need to being gritty is going to help you push through the resistance you're going to get from anyone or anything that happens in your life no matter what you pursue you're going to get resistance so push through it you'll be okay i promise but do it with grit being wild like Australians is that off-kilter thing that's going to get you where you need to be. Everybody that does standardized normal things is standardized and normal. People don't rise to the top. People don't create nations. People don't turn Australia into a working country and continent without being wild and pushing and being off-kilter and doing something unique. You need to do those things in your life. And then once you do those things, enjoy your pride. Take it in. Do not let your pride become boastful and against other people. But without a doubt, hold your pride on your sleeve and be very proud of who you are, where you're going, where you've been, what you're doing now, all of those things. And if you embody those three things, pridefulness, your wild side, being gritty and being resilient, you will be as successful as you possibly can. And I feel that is a great lesson to pull from the Australians because they are all of those things in spades and beyond anything we can imagine. So with all that being said, that is going to be it for me. Australia is just 
such a great country to read about. It's had such a terrible, nasty past, and the development of this nation is beyond unique. But with that, there's just been so many great stories from Ned Kelly to the unique emu war to just so many things that have happened in this country that just make it defined as the outback, the land down under, the country that it is. So all of that comes together for me to say I'm very glad you guys listened to this. And this is going to be goodbye for me. I'm so glad you listened. I'm so glad that we got to have our guest. I'm so glad we got to have different things happen. I'm so glad this all fell the way it did. This is a great episode. Australia is so unique. And I'm so excited for you guys to hear this. So with that being said, for the last time, my name is Reese Garlinski. This is Young History. And that was Australia. You guys have a great one.